Thank you so much for tuning in to our church podcast. You can go to atarapentecost.com for questions about services and how to donate. We pray that you are blessed by this message today. God bless. So good to have Brother Carl and Sister Mary here with us. And uh, of course, they came to help celebrate the one and only Finn's number one birthday. Amen. And uh, we always appreciate Brother Smith and his ministry of the Word of the Lord. We're going to ask him to come at this time. Amen. God bless you richly, Brother Smith. Glory to God. Thank you, Pastor Noel, so very much. I appreciate your kindness to me. Give honor to your pastor and his sweet wife. They're a wonderful couple. Amen. Man, you, you can be seated. We are delighted to be with you at Tower Pentecost. We feel like almost like we're at our second home. Amen. And I want to give honor to Kelly and Beth Smith. Amen. We love this couple. So thankful that our son is part of their family. And by extension, we get to be part of their family. We had a great time with them. They cooked a wonderful meal for us on Friday, I believe it was. We were a little late getting here Thursday, but we just backed up and did it on Friday for lunch. Had a great time. And then yesterday was a wonderful time uh, getting to celebrate Finn's first birthday. Amen. He is a wonderful little boy, and uh, we love him. And I just was a little overcome with emotion this morning when I walked in and so enjoyed Brother Clemson's teaching this morning. Uh, it's tremendous. And I walked in and I just began to soak up some of the love that Finn gets to soak up every week here and uh, with event after event. And we're so glad that Ryan and Janelle are here. We believe they're in the will of God. Amen. I'm excited about uh, the, the drawings in the front for the future plans. You're thankful for a pastor that has a vision. Amen. I believe it's going gonna, it's gonna to come to fruition. And, and uh, I'm not going to hurry this morning, but I'm not going to belabor the point either. I'm not going to try to keep you overly long, but I, I want to say it again. Pastor Grant, thank you so much for your kindness to me. You have always been so gracious, and it, I do counted a privilege and an honor to stand in this pulpit and to speak to this congregation. I honor you, and I'm so thankful to be a part of a church that reaches all the way around the world. Amen. Amen. The sun never sets on the church of Jesus Christ, and I'm thankful for that. I, I do want to turn your attention this morning to the book of Romans, a powerful book. Thank you, those that would like to stand. I'm just going to read a couple of about three verses of scripture from chapter number one. I want to talk to you this morning, subject entitled, The Power of the Gospel. The Power of the Gospel. And I bring you greetings from Starks, Louisiana, the wonderful church that my wife and I are privileged to pastor. It's her home church. It was the very first Pentecostal church I ever set foot in. It's been a long time ago now. I was 17 years old and I'm a birthday or two beyond that now, uh, maybe more than one or two. 
Romans chapter number 1, verses 15 to 17. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation. To everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Amen. And while you're standing, would you just go with me to the throne of grace one more time. And let's ask the Lord to bless everything that happens from this moment forward. Our Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. Lord, I thank you for the Tower of Pentecost here in Richland, Washington. For this group of people that have dedicated themselves to worshiping you and making your name known in the Tri-Cities. We pray for your blessings now. As we look into the word of the Lord, would you anoint the lips of clay, God, and let every word be fitly spoken. And I pray that your word would have free course in this house. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, the book of Romans is perhaps one of the most powerful statements of the gospel of Jesus Christ that has ever been written. Now, there may be some dissent about this, but I don't know if there would be any in this house. It is almost universally accepted that Paul, the apostle, is the author of the book of Romans. Scholars set the date of its writing somewhere between 53 and 58 A.D. Many believe that it was written from Corinth during Paul's third missionary journey. By the time of this writing, if that is correct, then Paul would have been a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ for more than 20 years. But he had not yet been to Rome. There was a church in Rome. Paul longed to visit them and to preach to them. But it wasn't certain, perhaps in his mind, that he would ever get to visit there. He wanted to go. He longed to visit them. He planned to go, but before he was going to go to Rome, he planned to go to Jerusalem. He was warned repeatedly not to go to Jerusalem, yet he was determined to go anyway, believed it to be the will of God. Acts chapter 21 contains a written record of one such warning. I'll read it in your hearing. Acts chapter 21, verse 10 to 14. And as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. And when he was come in unto us, he took Paul's girdle and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus saith the Holy Ghost, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when he heard these things, both we and they of that place besought him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what mean ye to weep and to break mine heart? For I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, The will of the Lord be done. Paul said, I'm determined, whatever it costs me, to do the will of God. And even though Paul had every intention of going to Rome someday, it is possibly true that the weight of the prophecy of Agabus and others that had warned him not to go to Jerusalem weighed on him and it perhaps affected him and perhaps he thought what if I never make it to Rome so some scholars believe that he wrote Romans 
which is such a comprehensive explanation of the gospel, he wrote it to the Roman church just in case he would never get to visit Rome himself. And because of this, the book of Romans is a little different from the other letters that Paul wrote to the New Testament churches. A lot of the other New Testament churches primarily focus on the church and its challenges. How many of you know the church does face some challenges? Amen. We, we, and if you've been in the church for a while, you know that challenges come and challenges go. But there's always a challenge. So Paul wrote a lot of his letters to churches that were facing challenges, and he addressed those challenges. But the letter to the Romans focuses more on God and his great plan of redemption. The letter to the Romans focuses on how God made a plan. Every subject in the book of Romans really relates directly back to God. Now, I'm not going to bore you with statistics, but I, I do want to lay a little bit of a foundation. The word God appears 153 times in the book of Romans. That's an average of once every 46 words. That's more frequently than any other New Testament book. In comparison, there are also other words that appear frequently there. The law, the word law appears 72 times. The word Christ is there 65 times. The word sin, 48 times. The word Lord, 43 times. And faith, 40 times. Romans does deal with a lot of different themes. But as much as a book can be about God, Romans is a book about God. Amen. And, and Paul said it rightly so. He said the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God. He said it's the power of God unto salvation. So I titled this the power of the gospel. And whenever you, when you receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, you really have available to you the power of God, the power of God to change your life. Starting in chapter 1, uh, I'm not gonna, obviously not going to have time to step through this entire chapter, but there's a few verses I want to look at a little closer as we talk about the power of the gospel. Romans chapter 1 verse 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated under the gospel of God. And then in verse 2, parenthetically he explains, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared... To be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. By whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. In verses 1 and 2 Paul says I've been set apart to spread the gospel of God. And then in verse 2 he says the gospel of God was promised through his prophets. In other words Paul is saying the gospel isn't a new idea. It was God's idea from the very beginning. There's a great comfort in understanding that the gospel was not a stopgap measure to avert disaster, but it was God's answer to the curse of sin from the very foundation of the world. The Bible tells us, Behold the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. In other words, God's not making this up as He goes along. God has a plan. God always has a plan. It's been that way from the very beginning. And since long before you were born, God has a plan and you have a place in it. 
When I began to think about this, I was so thankful. And I told God, thank you that you are not fickle and you have not changed your mind about saving me. He doesn't get up on the wrong side of the bed. In fact, the Bible says he never slumbers. He never sleeps. But if he did, he doesn't get up in a bad mood on Monday morning and say, you know what? I'm tired of fooling with Carl Smith. I'm tired of his shenanigans. I've just decided I'm not going to save him after all. But what he planned to do in your life, he's going to see it all the way through to fruition. He doesn't give up on you. In fact, he's never given up on you. If you walk out on him, he cannot deny himself. He still keeps pulling, trying to pull you back. He hasn't changed his mind. He's not fickle. And he's not mad at you either. He goes on in verse 3 and 4, and he says, Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. He lets us know right in the beginning of the book of Romans. He's about to write a very comprehensive book about the gospel. He lets us know right in the very first chapter that the center of the gospel is Jesus Christ. His birth of a woman proves his humanity, but his power over death proves his deity. The resurrection of Jesus shows his divine power because he rose again by his own power. He said... Jesus himself said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up again. That's John chapter 2, verse 19. Now, we know what the gospel is. I know the gospel's been preached here for many years. You don't need me to tell you that the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the good news. He died for you. He became, as Brother Clemson pointed out, the propitiation for our sins. And he explained, that means he died in our place. He took our he took our place, and then in the place of the, the sentence that we deserved, he gave us pardon. He satisfied every legal requirement of the law so that he could look, he could look you in the eye and say, your sins are forgiven. I'm going to change your life. The center of the gospel is Jesus Christ. Paul said that he was declared to be the Son of God. He said that, I believe it was in verse number Three or four declared to be the Son of God. Now, there are a few words in the New Testament that, a few Greek words in the original, that are translated as our English word declared. John 1, verse 18, is one example. And no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. In other words, Jesus brought God into view. John said, no, nobody's really ever seen God, but Jesus Christ brought him into view. The word declared in, in, in the original language there is exogeomai, and the word there is a verb that shows action. And what it means is to draw out in a narrative, to unfold a teaching, or to declare, or in a sense, to bring into view. I, I, I believe... Uh, it was the name escaped me of the man that wrote the book, John, the gospel that had to be written. For the Kinsey, I believe, was his name. In that book, he made a statement. In Jesus Christ, God became something he had never been before. He had never been a man. 
But he never stopped being everything that he ever was. That's why he could walk on water. That's why he could open blind eyes. That's why he could multiply the loaves and the fishes and do all the miracles that he could do. But I would say it this way. When, when John wrote verse 18, he said he declared him. He brought him into view. In other words, Jesus showed us God. He even told his disciples in John chapter 14, verse number 9, He that has seen me has seen the Father. So in a sense, in John chapter 1, verse 18, the word that is translated there, declared, has a sense of perhaps show and tell. Jesus didn't just tell us who God is. He showed us who he is. The things that Jesus did and said became a clear view to God to those who were really paying attention. However, in Romans chapter 1, the word declared comes from a different Greek word. The Greek word there is horizo, or horizo, if you prefer to pronounce it that way. It's also a verb, and it means to define. It means to mark out the boundaries or limits of any place or thing, to determine, to appoint. Horizo is the same word, the same Greek word where we get our English word horizon. You know what the horizon is. The horizon is the line that determines the farthest visible part of the earth in reference to the heavens. Now, I live in the piney woods behind the pine curtain, and the horizon sometimes doesn't seem very far from where I'm looking. But out, out here, uh, you can. we went out on a nature walk yesterday, and we got up on a ridge, and we could see for a very long way. But as far as we could see when we got to the point we couldn't see any more in the distance, there was a horizon. And it marked out the, 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 the limits, rather, between what is of the earth and what is of the heavens. It seemed to point to us the limitations of the earthbound and the seeming limitless of the heavens. And in this place in the scripture, the word here, horizo, signifies such a manifest and complete exhibition of the limits that we have in understanding God. In other words, let me say it this way, Jesus was and is our horizon. He is all we can see of God. We are limited, I admit that, but it's a wonderful limitation because we know that Jesus Christ is more than enough. We don't see all, we don't need all, need, we don't know all, but we see enough and we know enough to come to Jesus Christ. Can I tell you, if you 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 don't have to be highly educated this morning, you don't have to be wealthy, you don't have to have a high social standing, but if you know enough to come to Jesus Christ, if you know enough to come to him, you know everything that you need to know to get to God because he alone is our way to God. He was God manifest or made visible or brought into view in the flesh. And he is our way to God. He said it himself in John chapter 14 verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So he is our horizon when it comes to God. And we don't really see the end of all that he's doing in our lives. But we can see enough to know that it's going to be glorious. I love what 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 and 10 says, But as it is written, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. 
But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all, the, all things, yea, the deep things of God. We don't see everything there is to see. We sometimes read that and we think it's talking about heaven. But I really believe it's talking about we have not yet seen the depths that we can go in the Spirit. Oh, I, I'm, I'm telling you, there's more available for you in God no matter where you are. Let me just speak to that just for a moment. You may have walked in here for the very first time. This might be the very first time you ever walked into a Christian church at all. You might not have ever been a part of a worship service, but it, it doesn't really matter if, if, if this is your first time here. There is so much available for you if you'll just keep coming. Now, you might have been here the, since this church began, since Tower of Pentecost had, a, had its genesis. You might have been here for the very first service, and you might not have missed a service since then. And if that's the case, I know you've heard preaching and teaching that, that excels what most people receive. You've heard a lot about the power and availability of God, but there's more available for you in the Spirit. We have not yet touched the top of what God wants to do in Richmond, Washington or Starks, Louisiana. It's available. And as we seek Him and as we search for Him, it doesn't yet appear really what we're going to ultimately become. But John gives us a clue in 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Sometimes people look at us and they say, oh, those people are just emotional. They're just crazy. They claim to know God. We don't, I don't know whether they know God or not. But here's what John said in verse 2. He said, Beloved, now. Now are we the sons of God. We're the children of God. Right now. If you've obeyed the gospel, you're a child of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We're going to see him as he is in that day. But until then, our horizon is this. Jesus Christ crucified, raised from, the, raised from the dead, declared to be the Son of God with power, and Jesus Christ in my life changing me. And that is more than enough. In verse number 5 of Romans 1, Paul says this, By whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you are. Also, you are the called of Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul is saying the gospel is big enough and it's great enough for the whole world. The gospel will impact all nations. That's why we support missionaries. That's why we support Move the Mission. And I saw this church was number one in Washington District and Move the Missions. Am I correct about that? Y'all don't even know that, do you? Maybe I'm wrong, but I want to commend you for giving to move the mission. And you know what that says? You say that when you give what you can to missionaries, you give what you can to move the mission. When you give what you can to support this local church, you're saying, I believe there's power in the gospel. There's power to change people's lives in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's important to invest in it. And when I reading, it had reached Rome. 
We don't know how the church got established in Rome. We don't really have a record of it. A lot of people believe that because people migrated to Rome from all over the known world, there were Christians that came there and and it was just an automatic thing for Christians to begin to worship the Lord and to, to have church together. And I, I don't want to take the time to read from verse 7 all the way to verse 16. But I, I want to I just read verse 14. Paul says, I'm debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. Basically, Paul is saying, I owe it to everybody to preach the gospel. It doesn't matter what their background is. It doesn't matter where they came from. You know, some people are privileged to hear the gospel simply because of where they were born. But then there are a lot of people that have never heard the gospel simply because of where they're born. Paul says, I owe it to everybody, regardless of where where they were born, regardless of whether they're a barbarian or a Greek. He was just using that as a catch-all term. It doesn't really matter how, how messed up your background might seem to be or how far away from God your background might seem to be. Paul says, I'm a debtor to you. And I think the church feels that we have a great debt to the world that we're a part of. I want the world to know that the power of the gospel is available to them. So Paul says, so as much as is in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew, also to the Greek. Again, I think he uses Greek there as a catch-all term for Gentiles. And you're either a Jew or a Gentile. That's the only two classifications in God's economy. So if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. So we're all in this boat together. But Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. That seems like a strange statement to me, Pastor. I, when I, I don't know when the first time I read that, it really struck me, but it seems like a strange statement until you really begin to think about it. I mean, we're not ashamed of the gospel. Not at all. As a matter of fact, you've got it on your sign, Tower Pentecost, and, and, and your outreach to this, this city, or the, the Tri-Cities. You let them know we're all about the gospel. We're, we, we, we proudly display the cross, which has become the symbol of the gospel. We're, we're not ashamed of it, but I want you to consider Paul's reference point when he wrote that. The story of a crucified Savior, when Paul told it, it hadn't had over 2,000 years to be beautified. In our day, the, the cross is beautiful. And the suffering of Christ is almost glorious. But in Paul's day, in the day of Roman dominion and domination, Rome held on to power in the most brutal ways imaginable. Crucifixion was one of them. It was not glorious. It was ugly. It was a horrible scene. There were no gold crosses on gold chains. The cross was not a decoration that you would hang on your wall. You've got to think about it. I know it's been a long time even in our country since anybody was put to death in an electric chair. But if you can get your mind there and imagine the way we hang crosses on the wall as a decoration. In Paul's day, that would have been like us hanging an electric chair on our wall as a decoration. It was not a decoration. And it was, not, it was not a symbol that in any way would seem to indicate power. 
The cross was an instrument of torture and it always ended in death. It was reserved for the most hated criminals and enemies of the state and uh, it was reserved for people who were not citizens of Rome. So the God of heaven manifest in flesh who owned it all was not even considered a citizen of Rome. They hung him on a cross. To be crucified in Paul's day meant that your message had been deemed false by the authorities. And it meant that your mission had failed. There was no triumph seen there. It did not look like the way to establish a kingdom. Yet God used the cross to confound the wise. Because not everyone understood the cross. I think today most people do understand the cross or at least what we're trying to say when we display a cross. But in Paul's day, not everyone understood the cross. Not everyone believed that three days beyond its shame was the triumph of resurrection. Those like Paul who did not believe that there was a resurrection they were ashamed of the cross. But Paul said, I'm not ashamed because I've met the risen Savior. Paul knew the gospel might not appeal to the sophisticated and wealthy. And more often than not in Paul's day, it was the poor and the desperate that would cling to the old rugged cross. Yet he was not ashamed. He said, I am not ashamed of the, of the gospel of Jesus Christ for it is the power of God. He knows, Paul knows, knew that the gospel of Jesus Christ has inherent power. We do not give it power. Our oratory, whether we're gifted or not, does not make it powerful. The gospel is powerful because it is God-ordained. Amen. And the gospel is not just powerful. Hear me. According to the word of the Lord, it is power. It is the power of God to save and deliver. The gospel impacts nation. But it does more than that. It impacts individuals. You talk about some power. What is it that can cause somebody to walk into a place where people are worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ? Their life can be in a turmoil. They can be bound by drugs and alcohol or any other number of things that are destroying their lives. And they can walk in and they can hear a simple gospel message. They can hear about a Savior that died for them and rose again on the third day. And it can reach down where they're living to a point that will move them to a place of prayer. And God will reach into their lives and deliver them and turn them around. I'm talking about some power, the power of God. You're here this morning, I, and, and, and I speak as a fool. Many of you I recognize because I've been here before, but maybe uh, one or two I haven't seen. I don't know whether this is your first time here or whether you've been here many, many times, but I'm here to tell you as a guest speaker, and I, I honor, obviously would yield to your pastor if he disagrees with me, but this place is not a place of theory or philosophy. This is a place of life-changing good news. And it's, please don't tell me it's just emotional. Oh, I, I still get emotional. Pastor, I've been trying to live for God now for 38 years. I've been attempting to preach the gospel for about 30 of those years. 
But this morning when I walked in, it was just such a simple thing. I walked in and I took my place over there where I sat beside my wife. And as, bro as Brother Steve Clemson began to teach the word of the Lord, I had to wipe my eyes because tears came to my eyes because I realized it was the word of God that was preached and the gospel that was preached that changed my life. I walked into a church 38 years ago broken and torn and my life in shambles and God reached in and pulled me out of the darkness and put me into his marvelous light. It wasn't because somebody knew how to say it. It wasn't because somebody knew how to preach, but it's because the gospel of God is power. It's more than just emotion, even though I still get emotional. It's not just a feel-good story even though it still makes me feel good. It's not a myth. It's not a made-up story. I know better because it changed my life. It is impactful. It is life-changing. It is freedom. The gospel broke the chains of addiction off of my life. It healed my broken heart, changed my thought processes. I can say today, thank God, I'm not what I used to be. Am I perfect? Oh, no. I press toward the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I'm still trying to make it, but thank God I'm not what I used to be. What is it that can change somebody's life? Somebody who's on a breakneck course for destruction can turn around and, 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 and do a 180 and go a completely different direction to people that used to know you say, I can't believe what happened to you. I'll tell you what happened to me. The power of the gospel reached into my life and it changed me. And I'm preaching to somebody this morning I want you to know that the gospel can change your life because the gospel is power the gospel is not a self-help program the gospel is not advice to people it doesn't suggest that you lift yourself the gospel's power and the gospel will lift you up now, we all need to be lifted up. Oh, yes, we do. We put ourselves in categories, don't we? It's always somebody trying to put a label on you. And sometimes you put a label on yourself. I've, I've done it. I've said it to myself before. When I've done something stupid, I've told myself how stupid I am. Well... I'm here to tell you, you may have done some stupid things, but you're not stupid. You're in the house of the Lord. You're not stupid. Don't wear that label. Don't put yourself in that category. But we do put ourselves in categories. We look at what we might call great sinners. You know what a great sinner usually is defined as? Somebody who seems to be sinning more than you are. Somebody doing stuff you wouldn't do, or you would never do, or you've never done. That's I'm glad I'm not like them. We we call them great sinners. We put them in the pit, don't we? Even books been written about get out of that pit, and and some of them are good books. But we put people that are great sinners. We put them down there in the pit. Some of us feel like we're in the pit this morning. Oh, I, I've lived there. 
my life where if I would describe it where I'm looking up, all I see is a round hole with a little circle of light. Why? Because I'm so far down, I have to look up to see the bottom. Been there. I, I would have categorized myself as a, as a great sinner. But then there are those who do not indulge in the vices that are common to men that perhaps might think themselves to be on a mountain in comparison. You're in the pit, but ooh, I'm up here on this mountain. But can I tell you, the ones that are breathing the clear mountain air can't touch the stars any more easily than the ones that are wallowing in the pit. You're powerless to save yourself no matter where you are. You need God. And that's what the gospel points out to you. The gospel points out that you need God. You don't need to think of yourself as wallowing in the depths of sin and so far in the pit that it would somehow be more difficult for God to rescue you. I promise you, he can come to where you are. I'm preaching to somebody who might be in a circumstance or situation that they don't feel like there's any way out of. Anybody here say, there's no way out preacher you don't know what's going on in my life I will never be able to get out of what I'm in let me tell you when you can't get out he can get in <laughs> when you can't when, you know you can't go far enough in the pit for him to be able unable to lift you up <laughs> he came to seek and to save that which is lost when that finally soaked into my thinking, I realized, yes, he can save even me. That's what he came for. He told the woman at the well in Sychar, you remember that story, John chapter 4? He told her, if you ask me, I'll give you living water. He went out of his way to reach to her. And he told her, when she asked, when she finally, you need to go back and read that story. I read it, I've read it so many times, I've preached so many messages over it. She made a statement when she finally figured out she was talking to more than just a Jewish man. She said, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. And our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you say Jerusalem's the place where men ought to worship. But really, there was a question in there, and that was where can somebody like me find God? And Jesus said to her, The hour cometh and now is when you shall neither in Jerusalem nor yet in this mountain worship the Lord. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. That hit me so hard one day, Pastor. I was reading that and I'm thinking, wow, he was looking for somebody like me to worship him. That's what Jesus said to this woman at the well. He really said to her, God's looking for somebody like you to worship him. He's just wondering if you're going to be honest with him. Will you worship him with all your heart? Will you worship him in truth? Will you admit that you need him? Will you say, I don't have any claim on him whatsoever. I couldn't worship in this mountain because people won't worship with me because they know my story. If I got to Jerusalem, I don't have the right birth. I, I'm the, I'm, everything's wrong about my life they're not even going to let me in the temple if I get to Jerusalem where do I find God he said you're going to find him when you get honest with him I'm telling you when I understood that God was looking for somebody just like that to worship him I don't care how messed up your life is I don't care if everybody else has written you off if everybody else has forgotten about you if somebody looked at you and said you don't have a chance to make it there's a God in heaven that says I'm looking for somebody just like you to worship me 
That's the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel takes those of us that were in the pit and those of us that were in the mountain, and it puts us on level ground before the God of creation who we all need. And he introduces us to him. And if we can just believe it. See, the gospel is the power of God. Paul didn't say the gospel brings power. He said it is power. And if you can just believe it, you can have it. And it will change your life. God will not withhold from you all of the benefits of the gospel if you can just believe. In fact, Jesus said something marvelous would happen in your life if you could just believe. In John chapter 7, verse 37 to 39, in the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Now, I know it says man, but that means any member of the human family, man, woman, child. If you're thirsty, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly, out of his innermost being, shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given. Because that Jesus was not yet glorified. When you believe it and obey it, something beautiful can happen in your life. If you can just believe. You see, he, he paid the price. I keep going back in my mind to what Brother Clemson said this morning. I, I'm, I'm, I'm coming to a close here in just a moment. But about Jesus Christ being the propitiation for our sins. That's such an obscure word in our modern English language, but it, it has so much meaning. He took our place. He paid the price. He satisfied every legal requirement. There is nothing in the law that keeps you away from God because Jesus paid the price. And when you come to God... Jesus doesn't look at your record. Oh, no. God doesn't look at your record. He looks at the record of Jesus Christ, which was perfect. Under the law, you had to bring a lamb. It had to be a spotless lamb. I mean, there were other animal sacrifices, but let's just talk about the lamb. Any sacrifice had to be spotless. You brought that lamb. You've got to get a picture of this. You brought that lamb to the priest. The only thing about the lamb, the lamb had to be spotless. So you brought that lamb to the priest, and that was all you could do. That was the only thing you could do to satisfy the requirement of the law that sin made. You had to bring the lamb. Once you brought the lamb, you turned it over to the priest, your job was done. The priest didn't look at you. 
and say, are you worthy to bring this lamb? What have you been doing today? Where'd you get this lamb? He didn't ask you any questions about what you've been up to. Why are you bringing this lamb? I don't know whether or not we can accept this lamb for what you're bringing it for. He just began to look at the lamb. And if the lamb was without spot, if the lamb met the criteria, the lamb was sacrificed in your place. Well, that's what Jesus did for you. He's already paid the price. There's nothing you can do for yourself to save yourself except come and receive the benefit of the sacrifice of the Lamb. That's the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel reaches to every person. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Probably happened to you, Pastor, and others of you that have asked somebody to come to church. You said, Well, I would go, but if I walked in the door, it would probably fall, the roof would probably fall in. And it's kind of a humorous way of saying, I don't really think God would accept me. That's a lie. That's a lie. He went all the way to a cross to accept you. He went all the way to a cross to receive you. So I'm, I'm going to stop preaching at this moment. I ask you to stand. I've got more notes. Uh, sometimes I over-prepare. But I want to give honor to, again, to the, all the ministry team here. As I close, I want to invite you to come to this altar. altars open not only for those that have never made a commitment but maybe for those who just want to say thank you Lord the power of the gospel in my life Acts chapter 13 no it doesn't seem to fit at all what we've talked about the Bible talks about prophets and teachers that were at the church in Antioch. Name some of them. But verse number two says, As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I've called them. And I read that this week. And it was almost like the words jumped out at me. As they ministered to the Lord. And I realize that our ministry is nothing if we don't first minister to the Lord. And I also realize that every single person that I would be speaking to this morning has an opportunity to minister to the Lord, no matter where you're coming from. You say, how do I do that? How do I minister to the Lord? You minister to the Lord by bringing yourself to Him. See, under the, under the law, you had to bring a sacrifice. If you're going to appear before the Lord, you couldn't appear before him empty-handed. Well, the sacrifice has been made. We don't have any more sacrifices that die in our place. The sacrifice we bring now is ourselves. We become a living sacrifice. The Bible says holy, acceptable unto the Lord.
In fact, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto the Lord, which is your reasonable service. I'm, I'm really pulling for some folks this morning. I want to tell you it's not unreasonable for the Lord to ask you to come. You say, well, I don't, I don't, really, I don't really deserve to come. I, I really, oh, the way's already been made. And it's reasonable for you to come. And it's reasonable for you to offer yourself a living sacrifice. So you're not going to die at this altar this morning. But what you are going to die to is yourself. And you're going to start living to him. And when you live to him, <laughs> you begin to live to him. When you allow him to wash away your sins, you do that by repenting. And then getting baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And the Bible says you'll receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Promised. You begin to live to Him. And you begin to minister to Him. What an honor to preach to you today. What an honor, Pastor Knowles, to be allowed to speak today. But the greater honor belongs to each of us in this place right now and that is the opportunity to minister to the Lord and and I know I've, I'm, I'm, I'm still pulling I, I, I know you rarely get 100% but oh I would love it if 100% of us came to the front and said you know what God in our own way I don't understand maybe everything that preacher said some of it maybe I disagree with that's okay but if you could agree with this much, I want to minister to the Lord before I leave here. I want to bring myself to Him. And for whatever that means, whatever that means in my life, I just want to bring myself to you, God. And I want to minister to you just by you showing up and walking into His presence. You begin to minister to Him while they play and sing.